Velkommen til Conlangery, et podcast om konstrueret sprog og de mennesker, som konstruerer dem. Welcome to Conlangery, the podcast about constructed languages and people who create them. I'm George Corley. With me down the roadways is William Annis. Hello. And over in Maine, we have Mike Lentine. Hello. And a couple notes at the top. Uh, William was just recently on a radio show. By the time you get this episode, it'll be a couple weeks old, but we'll give you a link to the archive. He was interviewed about uh, mostly the LCS and and sort of conlanging in general, too. Yeah. So we'll have a link to that. And uh, Mike still has no air conditioning. <laughs> I'm melting over here, and I also I'm away from any fans because they create a lot of a background noise that comes through the microphone. So we make Mike sweat for the show. Ah, uh, blood and tears go into this. <laughs> yes, yes, Mike, Mike, Mike suffers for us. Yes. Well, uh, maybe we should uh, t- we should create a language for you to learn that has a lot of words for ice and cold. Because today, we're going to talk about the Sapir-Whorf hypothesis, uh, also known as um, linguistic relativity. It's basically, in in general, uh, the it's the idea that language influences thought. Now, there are two forms of this hypothesis. It was, um, I don't think it was ever really formally proposed by anyone. It sort of grew out of right. a lot of thoughts um, expressed mainly uh, in an article by, what is it, Benjamin Lee Worf? Yes. Uh, about Hopi, which... Yes, where he, he wrote pa- paragraph after paragraph about Hopi and the Hopi worldview and how the Hopi language interacted with the Hopi worldview without ever giving a Hopi example. Mm. Yes. <laughs> people who study Hopi have been tortured by this ever since because a lot of what he said is just complete bunkus, complete nonsense. Mm-hmm. You have to wonder, did, so did he ever talk to a Hopi? He must have, but I don't know how well he did his work. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, to summarize a little bit of the actual hypothesis and the way that it's grown out of this, there are two uh, sort of versions of the Spear-Whorf hypothesis. The strong version says that language determines thought and that linguistic categories limit limit and determine cognitive categories. I'm reading directly from the, the Wikipedia article here. Most linguists, I think, will say that is kind of absurd. Basically, the, the this is this strong version is that, you know, what language you speak completely and utterly restricts what you can potentially think of, which is completely idiotic. Yes. So reason we think we say this is sort of what there's, there's a whole lot of evidence that you could, you could cite to say that this is a little bit ridiculous. People who speak radically different languages can still share elements of their culture uh a lot of this this kind of makes people think of like what words a language has for a particular concept but words are cheap 
if for cultural reasons you end up needing a word, you can coin it or borrow it. Yeah. So it's not really a good, it, it's, it doesn't really hold up. Now, there's a weak version that I think most, uh, many linguists will think is probably likely to some degree, uh, and it's that linguistic categories and usage influence thought and certain kinds of non-linguistic behavior. It doesn't like put a cage around your mind, but it just sort of, it, it sort of guides you towards certain ways of thinking possibly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And there is some evidence to suggest that. Um, William, you can, you, you're more familiar with a lot of things than I am. Uh, you're more familiar with talk about things about color terms, which I think is one particularly, uh, uh, place where this is particularly, um, I'm so, actually much less interested in the color terms. I'm really, really sick of the whole color terms discussion. It bores me to tears. Oh, really? The thing that, um, is been most interesting to me. Um, could we skip back a little bit? Um, sure. I want to say a few things. This is sort of interesting. This is not directly related to conlanging, but more about people who are uh, invent languages with agendas. Is that mm-hmm. variations of linguistic determinism are really popular in certain kinds of political discourse because it's really attractive, um, both in politics and some kinds of science fiction. Right. Where if you want to envision a new kind of humanity, you need a new kind of language to express new kinds of thoughts. Um, this shows up in certain kinds of academic leftism, where that never gets out of their libraries. Um, and then in science fiction, novels like Stranger in a Strange Land has a lot of this. Um, Suzette Hayden Elgin's Laudan was created specifically with, you know, Sapir Wharf in mind. She names them. Uh, things like The Languages of Pao, which is a famous old science fiction um, and the idea is that you can change people in fundamental ways by changing the language they speak. And uh, one thing we were talking about earlier, and we'll talk about, I mean, before the show started, and we'll talk about it again, is there's no evidence that changing the language you speak will give you magical special powers either. No. It's, which it's, is also a popular um, idea that using the right language will somehow change you pretty fundamentally. Right. And, it's, and give it's, you new capabilities. And there's no particular reason to believe that either. Hmm. Um, so... I just wanted to mention those as backgrounds because it pops up a lot in sort of certain kinds of science fiction. And this idea that I can think of examples where it pops up in a negative way too with 1984. Sure. Yes. Sure. That's another one. That's another one. I had, I'd forgotten that. There's yes. a list of them I just posted on there. Um, it has a few examples. 1984, Laudan. Yeah. Uh, yeah. New, yeah. George Orwell had some odd ideas about language in general. Very odd. I, he's, well, anyway, I can rant about him some other time. <laughs> yeah. But yes. Um, but in, in general, yeah, it is very popular with science fiction and, and, you know, and in some kinds of philosophical languages. I mean, I really think something like Lojban also has this at the back of its mind. Yeah. Because Lojban is. Is sort of based on formal logic, and it's an idea that you can you can make you yourself more logical speaking it. Yeah, you guys should take a look at the list because I don't, I haven't heard of some of them. Like they have Ladan, Loglan, Lojban, Togipona, and then some fictional languages. And um, yeah, it's pretty mentions the languages that explore the Sapir Whorf hypothesis, which is what this what this episode is about. Yeah. So, um, what was he going to say? Uh, right. So. For me, the most interesting experiments that demonstrate that this is going on and that there is um, a modest influence in cognition 
is has to do in the difference between S languages and V languages. We've talked about these in the previous episode. I foolishly did not look up which one it was. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, satellite framed versus verb framed languages. So this is the question of do your main verbs of motion encode um, manner directly or do you have to add some extra adjunct or do your verbs encode manner and um, or rather not encode manner and you have to use uh, other kinds of verbal complements. So the big difference is like English, basically we have go, come, but manner is also encoded. You run, you jump, you skip, you ooze, you, right. you know, skip, all of this. And direction is indicated by satellites, i.e. adjuncts. I skipped to the ice cream man or ice cream truck versus romance languages where your main verb encodes um, direction and some of the location stuff and manner of motion has to be handled by some sort of um, adverb or um, participle. So, you know, I went into the house runningly or effectively is what that means. Yeah. And, and this is this is a sort of a general trend thing. Right. Languages There's, tend to be primarily S versus V. There are a few which fall right in the middle, as always. Um, and there's always exceptions. But in general, there's a, a tendency for a language to be more strongly satellite frame versus more strongly verb frame. The point is, is if you have people see pictures and you ask them to describe what's going on, you'll get certain kinds of characteristic descriptions in people who are speaking satellite framed languages versus those that are speaking verb frame languages. And it really shows up strongly if you ask them to recall the scene later. Right. What you recall um, is strongly influenced by the kind of language you're speaking. Mm. Mm. Um, basically, whatever your primary verb is encoding is what you're likely to remember. Oh, uh, okay. So in verb frame languages, you're likely to remember kinds of direction stuff. Um, whereas in satellite frame languages, you're more likely to remember manner type stuff where you're skipping or jumping or running or what versus where you're going into or out of or up or down or that sort of stuff. Um, so that's where that shows up. Um, and that's a really modest kind of superior wharf evidence. It changes a little bit how you remember stuff with a little training. You can make the effort to learn, you know, remember other parts. I mean, this is the, the point that I'm going to keep harping on. Nothing limits what you're capable of thinking, but you are predisposed to certain kinds of thinking. Seems to be the strongest we can convincingly say about superior wharf being true. Mm-hmm. Um, no. Mm-hmm. Go ahead. I was just going to say in, um, in Russian there, you can't just say to go. You have to say whether you went by foot or by vehicle and whether you went what unidirectionally or multidirectionally. And that was just an interesting thing. Some people are like, wait a minute, you can't say go? Then how do you say this? But it's just what you have to encode in the, in the word. Sure. It's not, sure. you know, it doesn't limit you. It just says what you must pay attention to. So. And right. it's, I think, um, uh, other things are like, you know, Spanish, you will more often see words for things like ascend and descend, which we rarely use in English. But in, in Spanish, you have subir bajar or, are used often. There's there's ways to sort of show which way it is, but it's interesting to think of how how this could can be um, different. Another thing that is also has to do with space that I find an interesting bit is, um, you know, we hear about uh, various Australian languages like Gugu uh, Yimitir, where there are no egocentric directions. 
everything's north, south, east, or west, or some sort of like absolute directions. Right. Left and right are not used very often. Yeah. Apparently, they're sometimes used to describe where you might have a pain in your body, but other than that, they're not used. Oh, really? Yeah. See, I, I was wondering about that because I, I would presume that, like, even if they didn't have those words before other people came, that they might acquire them or something. So that's nope. another. They, they still have them, but they're limited to a very, I mean, even like if you're sitting at the fire uh-huh. and, you know, someone might say, use your north foot to kick that log back in. It's only if there's like something going on inside your body that the left or right are used. And I don't think it's in Google Yimadir, but one of the sort of related Australian languages that, that did that. Okay. That, um, that makes sense. But yeah, the, the point is like very, very obviously there is going to be something that those people are going to be able to do. And that is nowhere what direction they're facing at all times. Which, what I love most about this, I was re- recently reading Nicholas Evans' book called Dying Words, where he talks about this. Even yeah. a blind person speaking one of these languages is always going to know where North is. Right. And, uh, you know, this is not, this is not something that we normally do with the, the language that we speak. I don't really, I guess I can think about it and project a, a map of Madison and realize that I think I'm facing West at this point. But I have to think about it. And um so this is not something that's really strange or a magical ability. It's just something that most people don't have to do all the time. And that that's probably where you're going to get the biggest effects is where the language forces you to 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 know certain information in order to market. Right. And like you said earlier, it might have kind of a really subtle effects. Like I don't know if in a place where the language was more likely to use north, south, east, and west are, say, for example, the rooms of houses more likely to be, you know, exactly lined up so you could say the north table? No. I mean, no, I don't, that's, I'm just no. amusing over this, so. There's no evidence of that at all. They just know. They just keep <clears throat> track of it. It's not likely. One thing that's uh, more extra linguistic is mm-hmm. that they have taken people who speak these languages and taken them to a remote place and asked them, about places that they they have been to and they're able to like point with a high degree of ac- accuracy where that place is so mm-hmm. it may sort of allow give people even more of a, a general navigational and spatial awareness than than just knowing where north is so yeah i, I really like um evan's explanation for you know how to uh, explain what's going on here um and basically, when our language forces us to attend to certain things like north, south, east, and west, our background mental activity that we're mostly not conscious of makes sure that we're attending to those things, right? right. We train our sort of background brain processes to keep in mind all of the things we need to speak our language correctly. Mm-hmm. Most of it is preconscious. And, you know, is presumably, I, I would guess that it takes kids, little kids, a while to master this system. Um, so that explains what's going on is with training, your brain learns to keep track of the things you need to know to use the language correctly. Yeah. That makes, makes a whole lot of sense. You could think of like, like, basically at some point they, they got a reference for what direction they're facing and they train their brain such that it sort of remembers what direction that was and, and keeps track of what direction. Cause They don't have, these people don't have to look at the sun or anything. Right. Right. 
Right. It's a subconscious monitoring. Yeah. Yeah. I would say pre-conscious more than subconscious. Uh, well, yes. Making it's... an overfine distinction. Um, so the places where this kind of modest Worfianism really shows up is like we've been talking about the spatial stuff, location and motion, like with the verb frame versus satellite frame. It's not terribly surprising that certain kinds of social cognition pops up here too, right? In languages where you have to keep track of whether your uncle is on your mother's side or your father's side and whether they're uh-huh. older than your father, you know, all of that stuff, you know, that's another place where this effect appears to be pretty strong too. Mm-hmm. Like there's some one or two languages, again, of Australia where to say the word mother, um, it's like you have to keep track of, um, the relationship, they don't just have a word for mother. Like you might have a word that means this person is my mother, but your aunt versus this person is my mother, but the person you're talking to, it's their sister. Mm -hmm. Um, So you have, depending on who you're talking to, the word for the same person is going to change because you need to encode the relationship of the person you're talking about to both the speaker and the listener. Um, Mm -hmm. My guess is the average American cannot cope with that task. <laughs> not without some work and training. Not without some training. Not without some training. Right. So it kind of makes sense that some really overt and important things that humans worry about out in the world, where we are and what is going on around us, um, and our relationships, um, are the places where these effects appear to be strongest. Uh, one thing. Uh, I prepos- like... Prepositions um, or postpositions tend to be another place where interesting things happen with this as well. Yeah. One thing I just. Uh was thinking about. This is not really a Worfian thing. This is more of a cultural thing. But for some reason, I feel like talking about... Um, I'm in Chinese, so you have the distinction between older and younger siblings. Yes. That, it, this again, this is not really necessarily a Worfian thing, but that its distinction gets sort of metaphorically extended um, often to talk about, like, co-workers and such. Right. That's this. There's an anthropological term for this sort of false kinship where you use kinship term to describe all sorts of people depending on their age and sort of social standing. Um, that happens in various places. I mean, Navajo does this it's hardly just Chinese where, where this happens. Yeah. I don't know. I, I thought it was, was an interesting thing. Again, it's not really Worfian. But um, it is it's it's probably an, a, a different kind of phenomenon. One thing that uh, you have in your notes here, William, is the uh, what you're talking about pop warfianism. This is oh. probably something you want to avoid trying to yeah. build into something. Is yeah. um, uh, the famous uh, Eskimo snow words myth? Oh, it's so terrible. First of all, the uh, phrase 40 words for snow in Eskimo is wrong in about three different ways. <laughs> First right. of all, the concept of a word is so different in mm-hmm. many of these languages than um, it is in English. Second of all, there is no Eskimo language. There are a good dozen or so languages spoken by various people called Eskimos or Inuit. They're not the same language. Right. Oh, oh. yeah. So anyway... In most of those languages, they have two or three roots relating to snow. Those that are coming, yeah, the distinction in terms of primitive roots has to do with, is it on the ground or is it falling from the sky? Right. Um, but the, the different, the problem with, with words is, um, there's a common suffix in one of these language families, which means material for. 
So if you say material for building a house and you're building an igloo, voila, you have another word for snow. No, you don't. You have a word for a material for building a house that happens to also be snow in certain contexts. It might also be wood in another context. One thing, um, when people ask me about this and they're like, oh, well, you know, Eskimo has 40 words for snow. And I'm like, well, you know, I think of it as like in English, we have blizzard, snow, flurries, but then you can also have snow, snowing, snowfall, and snow drifts. And it's, I mean, they're not, it's not as cut and dry as, oh, well, they have 40 words of snow, so they know lots about snow. Well, and that's, that's the, the whole point that I want to, to draw sort of a broader point from this. You want to be careful about, I mean, yes, there are circumstances where something that's culturally important to speakers of a language could produce lots of words for something. Yeah. Look but, at the Sami number of words relating to reindeer. Right. Um, oh, also, yeah, I've, I've heard, heard that. that um, Somali has many Lots of words, words for, camel. for camels. Yes. There's, there, that does happen. But you want to not uh, – that's not really uh, – that can be an interesting thing to work on when you're doing your lexicon, but it's more of a culture-influencing language thing. And words are cheap. If your language – for whatever reason, needs a word for something, then it can easily be coined or borrowed from another language. Mm-hmm. So it's uh, not necessarily coined because we usually don't coin words a priori, but, you know, derived in some way. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's not really definitely you can say people aren't usually limited by what words they have. Maybe... Maybe if those words make up a system, there's, there's some, you know, there's the, the whole controversy of, uh, about Piraha not having, uh, numerals. Mm-hmm. And, and perhaps that could be a, a, uh, an instance. But again, that's like, if they truly lack numerals, that's them lacking an entire system, uh, like a, an entire, like, segment of grammar rather than just lacking words for things. Yeah, I know. It's just <clears throat> like I think we were. I don't. We were talking about this before the uh, for the episode, but with I, I think we talked about it a bit. And with um, remembering and rec- recalling details of a story afterwards, if you have a language, for example, like um, well, okay, Russian has to, has a word for light blue and a word for dark blue. English, we just say blue. So later on, when you're recalling a story, it may be easier to remember that particular shade of meaning if you have two distinct words for it. Um, but as far as actual conception of it or actual, you know, your eyes being better or anything. Yeah. 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 I don't think it's, it's not, um, that's not the way it is. Yeah. A lot of people, sometimes, um, beginning conlangers, uh, especially those who might have some sort of agenda, get really moved by the idea of this linguistic determinism. I mean, my favorite example of how it all falls apart is people who, create languages without grammatical gender and think that somehow this is less sexist. Yeah. I was going to like, there are plenty of huge gigantic languages on this planet that have no grammatical gender at all. Do not even have separate words for he and she Two that come to mind are Mandarin Chinese and Persian spoken in Iran. Neither places are hotbeds of feminist thinking. (laughs) Right. I I was going to bring that up. A whole lot of conlangers have, this idea of grammatical gender being sexist, and that's not, not exactly the case. No. And there's there's sort of, um, there's a whole lot of issues. In fact, you know, 
even even going the other direction of culture influence, obviously language influencing thought, I don't really think, like, for example, I don't think Germans think that fire is female. Right. Again, this is one of those situations where if you draw cartoon figures of certain concepts and draw them in a gendered way, right, then people who speak languages that have gender preoccupations will be happier with one picture than another. Right, that mm. is true. But it's it's very unclear that this has some systematic influence on people's real thinking about the world and more specifically real thinking about gender relations. Yeah, and there's there's studies of sort of subtle effects like right. you know, um I think there was there there was a study of how Spanish and German speakers describe a bridge. Yes. And mm-hmm. they describe it differently because of the gender that it's assigned in the language. But it's it's very subtle effects. It's not going to be really highly visible. Um the what I was I, I was going to get at though is if you're if you talk outside of the, the Worfianism and going in the other direction of lang- of of culture influencing language, thought influencing language, some sometimes sort of like feminist uh, leadings can cause people to like really subsume uh, grammatical gender into things. Uh, I think I don't know if this is really the reason for this, but it's uh, I think it's a possibility that that sort of thing might be an influence in uh, some la- some uh, some Spanish speakers will say presidenta with an a uh, to make it feminine, but presidente would not normally require changing for gender because it's the it doesn't have any gender morphology on it. But, right. I mean people can tweak their language and tinker with it to make points and that's that's certainly common enough and yeah, that's, that's that's going the other way. Yeah, that's it's definitely going in the other way. I think almost the thing is with this Worfianism, as as we decided to discuss this, it's almost like the other direction is more important for conlangers because I feel like it's more important to think of how your how a con culture is reflected in your conlang than necessarily how the conlang would affect the con culture. Um, there there would be some effects on the culture, but it maybe you could think of it as like a cyclical or a not a cyclical but like a a, a feedback sort of yeah thing. an interdependent relationship yeah. Mm-hmm. Such I mean, as long as we're talking about humans and human languages, strong Worfianism is bunkus. Right. Nonsense. If you have aliens, then all sorts of weird things are possible, of course. But if assuming that you're inventing a human language, I'm going to go with George here, that you should focus on the impact of the culture on the language. And that does not necessarily mean 40 words for things that they care about. And and also remember the culture historically on language, because right. language ends up preserving... Uh, things that are not necessarily current in the culture, a little, uh, right. certain metaphors and such. We have right. a lot so of agrarian my... metaphors in English that many English speakers have no connection to anymore. No, and haven't for quite a while. <laughs> I mean, my favorite example, because it's always my favorite example for things, is Navajo, mm-hmm. right? That's an Athabascan language. Athabascan. That refers to Lake Athabasca way the hell up in northern Canada, where it is very cold. <laughs> And an altogether different lifestyle is lived. And yet, you know, we have this Athabascan language, which changed in various ways to accommodate the new circumstances in the desert southwest. Mm-hmm. Um, so, 
right? Languages obviously adapt themselves and accommodate all sorts of new thoughts all the time. But yeah. it's it's the local circumstances that impact the language, I think, are probably more useful to a beginner conlanger, even an advanced conlanger, than trying to imagine ways in which you can alter people's brains uh, right. by tweaking, tweaking with the language. Yeah. I mean, that doesn't it's... stop people from trying, right? We we still have Lojban. Um, to a certain degree, Ithquil is sort of an ex, uh, kind of going in that direction, but, uh. Well, not, uh, not at the behest of the creator. Well, that's there too. are uh, people who are, I think they're trying to do something similar to what was in Stranger in a Strange Land with Speed. Yes. Talk. Yes. They're trying to get themselves magic powers by thinking differently. Yeah. Well, I don't know if they really consider it magic, but more like better cognitive abilities if they, right, if right. It, but you know, there's no real reason to think that, uh, that that's possible. So the only thing I think is if like, if you want like the North, South, East, West, uh, geographic direction thing, if you had a conlang where you d- had to encode that, you could train yourself to always be monitoring it and you'd maybe yeah. become better at it if you used it and had a need to. Only if you had someone to speak to. I can't imagine that you would learn a system like that without having occasion to use it a lot for years. Yeah, there are, there are ease, and there are easier ways to do that. (laughs) Yes. Get a compass. Yeah, just carry a compass compass and a little training. Yeah. Or, um, there was, uh, I remember a story about a guy who, like, put magnets on his belt that would sort of tug him in the direction of north so that he always knew where it was and then trained himself that way. Holy cow, keep your credit cards away from that man. (laughs) A magnet strong enough to tug your belt north? Oh, my goodness. But I think that's Keep all computers away. There's probably (laughs) much easier ways to train yourself in that than to learn an entirely new language. And that's probably the truth about any of these any sort of effect that could actually result from Orphean effects is, is it's probably easier to find some other training method than to learn an entirely new language. Yes. That seems just about as logical as if you want to get better at multiplication, making a whole language that's base eight versus base 10. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, Oh, I really want to learn binary. My language only is a binary system. So, but that's like, you know, which would be incredibly and uselessly cumbersome. Yes, maybe. but if you had a base, a base like a uh, base twenty system or base, I don't know. Now, I, I could seven. I could see some programmers wanting to speak a language that has base eight just to mm-hmm. like get it into their heads. But I don't. But know. learning a whole language for that, to, they're going to have to move to the deserts of of north central Mexico to learn that language. Is, oh, there is a language in north central Mexico that has base eight. Yeah, it's not the space base eight? between. Navi's base eight. Apparently, in Mexico, they counted between their fingers rather than the fingers. Hmm. Oh, interesting. That's the thought. I mean, that. I mean, we don't know. That's a gesto story. We have no evidence of that, but that appears to be well. It's a possibility. It's there. There's pretty considerable of evidence that finger counting caused most languages to be base ten or base Mm twenty, or five, or what? Five or five. Yes. Uh, all all of those are very common. So it's possible, but it could have come from another source. Um, on the other hand, it could be interesting if a, if you had a culture that tried to do this. I've, I'm, I would be very interested if, um, sort of with the, the reboot of Star Trek, if they actually went to putting more development into Vulcan and make it sort of, uh, 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 an Englang sort of thing, 
because it's that strikes me as something that Vulcans would do with their extreme like religious devotion to logic. Maybe they might, or they, they might. could just have. A, I mean, like philosophers have an extremely terrifying way of talking about logic as well, which just uses standard normal English kind of weirdly. Yeah, it hmm. could be. It could. It, it could be more of they end up altering their own language in a way that that is odd. Yeah, that seems. Like, I mean, it's sort of canon that they still speak some language that's related to what they spoke before. They didn't invent something a priori because whatever language they speak is related to what the Romulans speak. But anyway, that's getting too much into Star Trek <laughs> lore. Let's, let's, let's not, let's not delve too far into that. But, uh, I don't know. <laughs> I think. Probably the takeaway for conlangers on this subject is... Uh, Invent your culture and let the rest take care of itself. Yes, that's 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 good. Again, assuming you're going for a literary or a naturalistic conlang, if you're going, if you're determined to make an edgelang, there's nothing we can do to help you. <laughs> well, yeah, and if <laughs> you want to make an edgelang that tests uh, some Worfian hypothesis... Go ahead. Good luck getting people to learn it to actually test it, but, <laughs> you know. Uh, yeah, uh, I have to think, of all of the languages that have been invented specifically with the ghost of Sapir Wharf hanging around, Ladal is the only one I can imagine actual human beings speaking. speaking. Yeah, although... I mean, Lojban is very difficult, very mm -hmm. few speakers. Ithquil, forget it. It's kind of... It's I mean, that's kind of, kind of a kind of meditation, sort of. A linguistic meditation is what Ithquil is, because to produce any sentence takes a great deal of work. Yeah, Ithquil... Ithquil... I could actually see trying to learn Ithquil as being a sort of training technique in itself, because of the, like, the hyper-precision that he builds into it. But at the same time, you are not really learning language at that point. Uh Right. Even John Quijada admits, you know, it takes him, uh, you know, hours and hours to translate things. It takes well, him yeah, twenty to thirty minutes was the normal time when uh, for that article that came out in the New Yorker back in December. Yeah, for a single word. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it takes it, it takes him a long time to translate things. He doesn't speak it fluently. I don't know if anyone could really learn it fluently because of the extreme precision involved. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I think I think it's theoretically possible. A very smart person probably could. But I don't know how many people they'd have to chat. To yeah, I kind of wonder if they would end up speaking like light is quill, though. But that defeats the purpose entirely. Right. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, like it requires. I don't know. I don't know. I, I guess I have to go back and investigate what all the verbal categories were are, but it <laughs> seems like it would require more information than humans normally attend to. Yes, it mm. would. Yes, it would. So it's, it's sort of, I, I have serious doubts as to whether you could, you could learn to speak it fluently and not alter the language a little bit. Um, but in, in general, I think for naturalistic conlangers, yes, do the culture first. And maybe you can pull in a couple small examples, but realize that most of the time the effects are very subtle. Right. You have to do weird scientific study designs often mm -hmm. to demonstrate the effects. Right. Right. And a scientific experiment is not normal. This is not how most of us spend our days thinking. So when you have to do weird things to show an effect, then the effect is real. I don't want to diminish that. Yeah. But 
you have to worry about how deeply really um, the impact is in your day-to-day life. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And like, it's sort of like, I have thought about this because I wanted to create a culture that speaks a language that that is like there's Australian languages and doesn't have um, egocentric directions or doesn't use them very often. And um, I was thinking about it and I thought about, okay, well, maybe this is a fantasy novel and it involves, it involves some travel. Maybe you could talk about the dead reckoning in that context, but, and then there's a character from outside that's learning that language a little bit. And you talk about a little bit about the language itself, but otherwise it's not really a big thing. And I worry a little bit about if I describe it too much in a certain way, people will think that these people just have this as a magical ability. Right. right. Which it's not magical. It's something real human beings do. Now, if you want to do an Engelang that tr- tests some Orphean hypothesis that some people, something some people are interested in, maybe they want to try it. Um, if, um, it's, it's sort of a weird experimental, uh, method in itself. I'm trying to think there was one, something else I was going to say about that. Hmm. I have nothing more to say about it. Yeah. But I think we've covered a good, yeah. good bit of a thing, good bit of information. Right, right. Well, yeah, I think that's about all that we have to say. Um, but oh, two things I want to say. Like we've said, we've said from the beginning, we can't, you can't make languages that give people magical abilities. <laughs> the second thing I would say is, the that extends to magical abilities about language. So you can imagine things that aliens might be able to perceive and 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 make words for that humans can't. Like I, an alien seeing into ultraviolet or and having some sort of telepathic ability or something like that. Mm-hmm. But I think it's probably there's a few things that are probably not possible. The the language in Ebbesy Town, and I love that book, but the language there is impossible. <laughs> a, a language that has no signifier signified relationship is uh, is just doesn't make sense. And a language where you can't lie, it, it's more it, if that book sort of only makes sense to me if I think about it as it's not the language inherently that causes this. It's like the weird psycholinguistics of the aliens, which sort of is how it's presented. And even then it stretches credibility. Uh, you probably will never have a language that can describe the experience of qualia. The qualia is your own personal experience of something. If I ask you to describe the color red, you can't describe what you actually see when you see red. You could describe other like physical properties of the wavelength of light or something, but you couldn't describe the actual experience. And I don't think it's possible to create a language that would describe that. The, those are things that I would also f- put in this category of things that Sapir Wharf couldn't do. Yeah. Mm. But other than that, that's about all the points that I had. Mike, did you have any fi- other final points to say or... <clears throat> um, I'd say that it's, you know, keep in mind that, you know, like you said, the language doesn't make the, the, the abilities or the shortcomings or the physical, you know, con- what you can conceive of in your mind. The language does reflect the culture and the language. It's, it's, it's not going to bestow upon you the ability to do something special 
it'll just, you know, kind of, it could force you to think about it more, but that's not necessarily something that the language by virtue of just being that language has done. Right. You have just been forced to take that into consideration much more frequently than if you had a language that doesn't care whether you walk by foot, by car or with three steps with 12 steps, whatever the case may be. Right. So, um, if you were, if that's something that's important to you and that's something that you think your con culture would be thinking about a lot, it would be, you know, it's not inconceivable for a language to do that. But, um, if you're trying to be realistic, I think you should keep in mind that the language does reflect the culture and go with the culture first and then let what happens, you know, organically come from that. So in short, we're all sort of agreeing, go with the culture for first. If you want a warping effect, know that it's going to be very subtle and it's going to encourage abilities that your speakers already have and, and not give them any, anything extra that's really not possible other ways. And then, uh, finally, it's, it's, it's going to be subtle and culture, culture, culture is. So now, what, just before you wrap up, one other thing you could, um, think about if you want to try to think of distinctions that might be made in the language and you're not sure if it happens in real language, I'd say just go and do what you want because it's your language. If you want to make, um, a language where instead of just saying night and day, they have four words for the day, depending upon if the sun is right over your head or over the, the right. sunset or whatever. Go crazy. If it doesn't happen in a natural language, that doesn't mean it's wrong. It just means it doesn't have a natural language. And if you're looking to make a natural language, then you might be, then you might want to do some research, but it's well, your language. And those kind of things, you can have a cultural explanation for it. Maybe mm-hmm. there's just uh, a cultural, uh, a, a particular tradition of astronomy that caused those words to come into being. And that's much more interesting if you take that route than just saying, oh, well, this is what happened. It's, so it's, it, The language doesn't come from nowhere. Invest in your people. That's right. Or yes. your speakers. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, I think we can probably wrap up that subject. I think we've said probably as much as we really want to say about it. And then some. <laughs> yes. And uh, I'm going to close out um, uh, next episode, we are going to be talking about Basque, and we have a special guest coming on for that. So, uh, keep, uh, watching your feeds for that episode. And I may be doing some, uh, uh, uh some more of my, some more shorts in between episodes. So, with that, I will say, happy conlanging.